You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. We're starting a brand new series today called Faith of the Flawed. And in this series, we're going to be looking at the big blunders of people in the Bible, the big blunders. Now, one of the reasons I love the Bible is the Bible is brutally honest, brutally honest. We have these uh, figures in the Bible that nobody's wearing a halo, nobody's perfect in the Bible. We have Peter cursing, we have uh, Noah having his issues with alcohol. We have these people that are just real, real people And so we're going to be looking at, uh, in this series, the different characters in the Bible that really blew it. Somebody asked me one time, would you like to be in the Bible? Would you like to be in the pages of Scripture? I said, absolutely not. I would not want to be in the Bible because in the Bible, God tells everything so that we can learn from the mistakes of other people. You know, one of the reasons that we see some of these blunders in the Scriptures is that these things are written, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things are written as examples for us to teach us. You know, you can learn from the good examples of people, but you can also learn from the bad examples of people. And so in this series, we're going to be looking at the mistakes of people. So we're going to start with one of the uh, first uh, mistakes and big blunders in the Bible. We're going to look at Noah. And uh, here's what the New Testament says about Noah. Uh, The New Testament doesn't rehearse what his big mistake was in the Old Testament. That's a really cool thing, uh, and that kind of shows you the heart of God, how God's grace in the New Testament covers the failures of the people in the Old Testament. It says in Hebrews eleven seven, by faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. But his faith, by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is keeping in with his faith. And then here's the story of Noah's failure. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 28. The sons of Noah came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he became drunk from some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness, told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah woke from his wine, he found out what, what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem, and may God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the, sa- the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Now, the reason that this story is probably in the Bible is because uh, later in the Old Testament, there's going to be a lot of conflict between 
the nation of Israel and the land of Canaan as they come into the promised land from Egypt. So this story, the backdrop of this story is a little bit about what's going to be coming in the future and therefore we see why the Canaanites are such a problem to Shem who is the, going to be the, uh, uh, the, the father of the Israelites. But in the story, we see Noah at his worst moment. Now in fact, when we look at Noah's life, this is the only really a uh, bad thing we see in his life. We see that he was a man that had favor with the Lord in a very wicked generation. Uh, we see him faithfully listening to the Lord and building this ark. We see, it said, according to 2 Peter, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he's like on his game. He's doing so good all the time. And then there's this bad day where he really, really blows it. Have you ever been, been really living well for the Lord and everything's going good and things are doing so good and, and then you have a bad day and you seem to act completely contrary to everything that you believe? Now, this is what happened to Noah. And I think the important thing about Noah is when you look at Noah's life, it's mainly good stuff and then there's this bad moment. And it's like a bad selfie. If you get a bad selfie, you can delete it. You know, have you ever taken a bad selfie and you just like delete it? It's that moment you'd want to just like, oh no, I'm never going to show that on Facebook. Uh, so you delete that picture. Or how about your passport picture? You know, have you ever looked at your passport picture and say, I'd like to get that frame. That looks so good. It's like the worst picture you could ever take, uh, you could ever be taken of you. Erin Bombeck said, you know, the uh, famous writer, she's deceased now, but she said, if, if you really look like your passport, you're too sick to travel. You know, it's really not a good thing. <laughs> but when you look at Noah, you see a lot of good, and then you see this bad moment. And I think that's true of a lot of people. A lot of people, there's so many good things in their life, positive things, but then, you know, there are this, this dark side that they struggle with as well. So let's talk a little bit, before we talk about Noah's drunkenness, let's talk a little bit about the good things in his life. One of the things is about the, uh, Noah's life and uh, what's good about him is his name, his name. Noah means rest or quiet. In other words, his name means peaceful. And it says in Genesis chapter 6 that Noah lived in a time of aggression and anger and hostility, that the world was filled with violence before the flood came. Now, I don't know if you have noticed that it seems like our world is becoming more and more angry. People are angry, they're hostile on airplanes, on the highway, on Route 1. People are really amped up. And I don't know if it's a COVID thing or what, but there's a lot of aggression right now in our world, a lot of aggression. Even sometimes people that, you know, follow certain theories about, you know, politics and all that, there's a lot of militancy and anger in them. And so when you think about a world of anger, you know, the Bible says in James chapter 1 that a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So Noah was not an angry man. Noah was not a hostile man. Noah was not an aggressive man. Noah was not this man that just like was going to fly off the handle. He was a man of rest and quiet. And one of the things I think that our world needs today more than anything is we need people in our culture that are not moved by anger, not moved by aggression, not moved by hostility, but they're moved by peace and grace. Peace and grace. We need more people that are full of peace. And sometimes we think... You know that somebody's angry and all that. Oh, you know, we just are attracted to anger. 
But Noah was not an angry man. And I'm here to tell you that the, you know, the New Testament says that the anger of man does not produce the kind of righteous life that God desires. So be careful of a militant Christianity. Be careful of people that are just going off on anger all the time. You want to watch that because the anger is not the purpose and the mode that God operates in. And so Noah was this peaceful man. He was a man of grace. He wasn't an angry man. He wasn't a hostile man. So when you, you know, get upset with somebody and you're, you're tempted to take your, your, your phone and text a real mean message, I don't know if you've ever been, how many have ever been tempted to do that? Don't raise your hand, but you know somebody that's been tempted to do that and get really angry. You know, somebody treats you wrong and you just like go off. And sometimes, like, you know, something happens to us, you know. Uh, I remember a couple weeks ago, I went to take my car in to get worked on, and my uh, Tacoma pickup, I took it in, and I, I had arranged my whole schedule around getting this truck fixed on a Wednesday, and I, I was in Rehoboth, and where I was going to get it fixed was in Rehoboth, and, and so I went there, and they said, you're here the wrong day. It's tomorrow you're supposed to bring the truck. And I was like, oh my gosh, that, have you ever just like, you didn't expect something to happen, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, you, you just get upset for a moment? Has that ever happened to anybody? Well, that kind of happened to me, and I was like trying to keep it in because I'm a pastor and all that, but I know my face, I, and I knew it was a vein sticking out on my neck somewhere. But, you know, anger is not the kind of life that God is calling us to. And everybody today seems to be angry. Everybody seems to be angry in, in the world, on TV, in politics, in relationships with people, in families. So much anger. But the Bible says that Noah was a man that was quiet and peaceful. Back when Ronald Reagan was president in 1984, he spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast, and he, here's, he told a story at the prayer breakfast, and the story was about this monk named Telemachus that was uh, born in the uh, 5th century, early 5th century, and he, he was living in Asia, and all this monk did was he would pray uh, every day, and he would work in his garden. And one day he's working in his garden, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him and said, I want you to go to Rome. I want you to go to Rome. And so Telemachus just thought, sure, he heard the Lord. And it took him weeks to get there, but he walked to Rome. And when he got into the city of Rome, they had just conquered the Gauls. And there was this big celebration going on in the Colosseum. And Telemachus had never been in Rome before. This little monk who just took care of his garden and prayed and, and loved the Lord. He was caught up in this throng of people, and he ended up in the Colosseum. And when he got into the Colosseum, he saw the gladiators come out before the emperor. And the gladiators said, we today who are about to die honor you and declare our, our honor to you. And all of a sudden, Telemachus realized that they were going to fight to the death. And so the, the gladiators began to engage in their battle in the Colosseum. And, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're hurling their swords everywhere. And the crowd in Rome is frenzied with bloodthirst, wanting to see this incredible bloodbath in the Colosseum. And this little monk, Telemachus, his heart was broken. And he cried out from his seat, in the name of Christ, stop. In the name of Christ, stop. And nobody heard him because they're all in a frenzy watching the, 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 uh, the activities that are happening in the Colosseum. 
And so he climbs down the stairs, he climbs over the wall, and this little monk walking toward these gladiators says, in the name of Christ, stop, in the name of Christ, stop, in the name of Christ, stop. And, and first people thought it was part of the, uh, the, the entertainment and they were laughing, but when they realized that he was really there to stop the fight, they became incredibly angry. And one of the, uh, one of the gladiators took out his sword and he plunged it into the heart of that little uh, monk and his little body lay on the sand, flo- sandy floor of the Colosseum. And the whole place became quiet. And when the whole place became quiet, one by one, section by section, people left the Colosseum. And the year was 404 A.D. And it was the last time that there were fights to the death in the Colosseum. Because a little gentle monk in quietness and peace, challenged a hostile and bloody world. And one of the things I can tell you what's happening in our culture is there's a rise of anger. There's a rise of aggression. There's a rise of hatred toward each other. And I'm here to tell you that God wants his church, his people, to be filled with peace and love and grace. I recently memorized some of A lot of uh, Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord, always I'll say it again, rejoice. And then verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. So I want to just tell you as your pastor, as uh, people that, uh, that I'm speaking to in Femic Island right now and people I'm speaking to in Millsboro and people that are watching online, I want to tell you, beware of militant Christianity. Beware of getting into a throw of anger, just being angry about everything because we are called to walk in peace because Noah's name means quiet and rest and Noah found grace in his generation, not because he was angry, but because he was filled with God's grace and God's peace. Peace and and, uh, loving grace toward people is a status of leadership that is very legitimate. Not just simply bang your head like Adolf Hitler, bang your hand on the podium like Adolf Hitler in anger and frustration. That is not leadership. That's just anger and frustration. We need to be people like Noah, full of rest and quiet. So that's what his name means. You know, a lot of things you can say about Noah. There's a good thing. He was a man of peace. He was a man of quietness. He was not an angry man. Then, you know, here's the thing that Noah accomplished. You know, he preached faithfully to the Lord, and it says that of all the people in Noah's generation, everybody thought evil all the time. Their very intention of their heart was filled with evil, and every imagination they had with evil. And then it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was different in his generation. Noah didn't laugh at their jokes. Noah didn't think the way they thought. Noah didn't follow into their their line of, of debauchery. Noah lived a righteous and good life in his generation. And I think about our students that are going back to school, to high school. I think of my grandkids that are in, in public school, most of them. I think about the, you know, the surroundings that they're in, the language they hear, the things they hear. We pray for them regularly. And I, I believe that our kids, the students of Bayshore, the students that are in student ministry, the students that are in all of our churches, that you can live a godly and righteous life in your school for the Lord. And if you believe that and you're behind our students, give, a, give them a big amen right now. So Noah was different. 
He was a man of peace, a man of quietness. He was different. He lived righteously in an unrighteous world. And then his biggest accomplishment in life. You know how many people he got on the ark? Some people speculate, you know, people lived in the Andalusian world. They lived for hundreds of years, you know, according to scriptures. Do you know maybe how long he preached? Somebody, some scholars believe he preached for 120 years. 120 years preached righteousness. And you know who got on the boat? Only seven other people beside himself. 120 years preaching, and only seven people got on the boat. And those seven people were his family. Noah didn't save anybody else, but he saved his family. And the most important people that we can reach for the Lord is our kids and our grandkids that we can save our family. I love that Brooke and Max came this morning and we dedicated a little Georgia to the Lord because they're saying on this stage, we want this little girl to follow Jesus. And if you're going to save anybody, save your family. Pray for your family every day. Maybe you got a wayward, some of you got wayward kids. Your kids are on, they are AWOL in the faith right now. You need to pray for your kids regularly. You need to intercede for them. You need to love on them. I get around my grandkids, you know. I love on them. I tell them how much I love them. I tell them how much Jesus loves them. They see me reading my Bible. They see that their grandmother Mimi and Papa talking about the Lord. If you're going to save anybody, save your family. Well, he saved his family. He was a righteous man. He was a man of peace and quiet. But then he got off the ark, and uh, he'd been on the ark over a year taking care of all those animals. And uh, he planted a vineyard. Now, the Bible says that, you know, man was supposed to have dominion over the earth, and so he's beginning to, to do what the Lord wants him to do. He plants a vineyard, and he makes grapes. It takes a while. Picks the grapes. And he's got so many grapes that he makes some wine. And he gets drinking that wine one day. He's drinking that. He empties one animal skin. Woo! Some good wine. Going to have another one. Had another one, had another one, had another one, till he got so inebriated that he, from the heat of the wine in his bloodstream, he took his clothes off and he lay naked in his tent. And his son Ham came in and saw it and then told his brothers. Now, this is an interesting story because this is the first time wine is ever mentioned in the Bible. This is the very first time wine is ever mentioned. This is the first time drunkenness is ever mentioned. And we see the sin of Noah here. And what is the sin of Noah? Is the sin of Noah drinking wine? Well, that's not the sin. It's not even pointed out that Noah is at fault here. The text is not about Noah being at fault. The text is about his, his, grand, or his son Ham being at fault. There's no condemnation for Noah at all in this text. You have to read that into the text. So the first thing you can say about this is we need to make clear is what, what does the Bible say about wine? Well, this is the first time it mentions wine. And here's what we know about wine. Wine can be dangerous. Proverbs says it can be dangerous. But the Bible never prohibits drinking wine. It's just not there. It's not in the text. Now, I was raised in a teetotaler church. Some of you were in Sussex County. I was raised, you never drink. You never, you know, think about it. You never get near it. You know, you just don't drink. You just don't drink. And so... That's how I was raised. And we, were, you know, we didn't drink at all, but boy, could we eat. We had covered dish dinners, I mean, to tell you. We couldn't button our belts. I mean, we had high cholesterol, blood pressure up. You know, we were eating. We're, you know, I just think probably eating too much is just as dangerous as drinking too much. I'm just saying. 
But here I could give you, I'm not going to go, this is a whole message, it's not about this, but I would say this. We know that wine, drinking wine, is not a sin because here's the big one, Jesus made wine. Jesus made wine, and in John chapter 2, he made wine. You say, well, I've been taught, Pastor, I've been taught that that was, that was watered-down Welch grape juice. That's what that was, watered-down grape juice. If you hear a preacher tell you that, that preacher does not know his Greek because it is wine. In fact, it's the best wine the banquet owner had ever had. He said, this is the best wine I've ever had in my life. So it was robust, and it was potent, and Jesus made a lot of wine for the wedding feast. And so we, that's, a, that's a big, big issue. And I wonder if the disciples ever came up to Jesus with bucks, buckets of water later on and said, could you do that miracle one more time? <laughs> but wine is not prohibited in Scripture. Drunkenness is prohibited in Scripture. We know that Jesus served wine at the Last Supper when they were having communion. We know that Jesus drank wine. We know that we'll drink wine in heaven. Maybe you didn't know that, but you're going to drink wine in heaven. Some of you that never drink in wine, drunk wine, you're going to drink wine in heaven because Jesus said at the Last Supper, I won't drink of this cup again until we meet again in the kingdom of heaven. So drinking wine is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And if you drink too much and become inebriated, and you lose your faculties, it's a sin. And it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a vice list lifted there, vice list. A vice list is the, the list of things that you cannot do and be in the kingdom of God, and one of the sexual morality is listed there, some other things, and it says, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So drunkenness is a serious thing. And let me just say this, some of you here today, and some of you watching online, and some of you at Femic Island, you can never, ever drink alcohol because of your, uh, what your mind does with that, and you're just not allowed to drink, and you just can't do it. And so that's important to know. Know thyself, Socrates says. That's very important. And I have good friends that, although we have liberty in Scripture to drink wine, they cannot drink wine because they can't handle that particular thing in their life. So that's important for us to know. But Noah, Noah got drunk and he was, you know, wh why? Here's, here's my question is, why did Noah get drunk? Why did Noah get drunk? That's the, that's the good, big question. And, here's a, here's a, and I just, I'm running out of time here, and I'm just on like my second point, but we're going to get this done here. You know, here's the, every time there's a problem with people and somebody does something wrong, we always point at the what they did, and we never ask the question, why did they do it? Every time a pastor falls into, into moral failure, and I've seen so much of that over my ministry, every time we all hit the ceiling and all that, it's a terrible thing, and it shouldn't happen, but it happens. Nobody ever asks the question, why did they do that? Let's do a case study of all the moral failures in ministry and figure out what is the common theme so we can get better at avoiding this. Because God's about getting us through things and getting better at things. Well, why did Noah get drunk? There's a, there's, there's a couple theories. One theory is, is that he did not know about the power of wine. This is the first time wine is mentioned. He didn't know about fermentation. He didn't know that wine became uh, uh, toxic and all of that and potent. He didn't know. Maybe it was out of complete ignorance. That's what some people say. Other people say that he got drunk because... 
He was dealing with trauma from the flood that he had just experienced. He had presided over the destruction of all mankind and floating bodies around the ark, and he had had a traumatic experience. And so Noah was in pain. And a lot of people drink because they're in pain. A lot of people drink because they are in some kind of emotional pain and they drink too much and they, they, become, they, they alter their mental state because they are in so much pain. People that come back from war, post-traumatic stress, and they've seen horrific things and they're in pain and they become alcoholics. I had a good friend in Bible college that he came back from Vietnam and he was an alcoholic and he drank because of all the horrible things he was trying to forget. Sometimes people drink because of pain. And I can say this, sometimes people overeat because of pain too. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you. I struggle with my weight. I don't know if you do. I, I wouldn't point anybody out. Obviously, we all struggle somewhat, but some people don't seem to struggle. You know, I can read a menu and gain weight now. I don't know what the world. But I know sometimes when I'm in pain, I eat too much. I like, uh, you know, you know, why not eat a whole thing of Briar's ice cream? Why not? You're trying to dull your pain. What do you do with your pain if you're in pain? Here's the first thing you do with your pain. You remember when you're in pain that everybody's in pain. Pain is universal to human beings. Everybody has pain. Everybody has struggles. Everybody has a story. This morning, if you all got up one by one, you have a story. You have some horrible things in your life that you're struggling with. So everybody has pain. When I'm in pain and I feel like I'm going through a hard time, what the devil tells me is you're the only one. Everybody's life is wonderful. They're having a great time. They're partying right now. Their life is good, and you're the only one. But that's not true. All of us have pain. The second thing about pain is if you have pain, you need to share your pain with somebody. And you share your pain with somebody. And you need to share the story of what's going on in your life. Now, in Luke 24, on the road to Damascus, we got these two guys here, Luke 24. We have these uh, two, two men that are walking. And it says this is on the day that Jesus had uh, you know, been raised from the dead. And there had been the crucifixion. They didn't know Jesus had been raised from the dead. It says in Luke 24 that they told each other everything that had happened. They told each other everything that had happened. And then Jesus walked in the midst of them. Let me ask you a question. Who is it that you tell everything that has happened to you? They told everything that had happened. And I don't know if you remember when you were a kid and you cut your, your finger and you had a Band-Aid on your finger and, you know, it had a little cut there. And it seemed like it just, you know, how it got real moist and your finger got kind of like waterlogged looking and all that. And, and, and your, your, your cut never got better until you, took the, until you took the Band-Aid off and let the air get to it. I remember doing that. You take that Band-Aid off and it seems like the air just heals that. And sometimes, you know, with the pains in our hearts, we've got we've to tell someone everything. And then it says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, cast your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. Cast your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. So no, everybody has pain. Say it with me. Everybody has pain, not just me. Say it real loud. It's not just me. 
Everybody's got pain. And that doesn't mean every pain is equal. Everybody's pain is unique. But is, is Noah in pain? Is Noah dealing with this post-traumatic stress from the, from the ark? I'm not saying it is, but I'm just saying that's a possibility. And I know that's why people drink too much. I had a wonderful lady in our church that had a terrible loss in her life. And I loved her dearly. She was such care, and I loved this gal so much. This terrible loss. She had so much pain that every night she came home with and drank a bottle of wine every night while she was getting dinner ready. She's dealing with that pain. Instead of realizing, hey, my pain is a part of the human experience and realizing that I'm going to talk to somebody about everything and my pain is not going to be private. I'm going to talk to a, a, a trusted person, a counselor, a loving friend. I'm going to talk about my pain. I have somebody, and I've told you this before, I have somebody I talk to once a month that I just, I, we just talk together. He's at a different state than I am. And I tell him everything. I tell him what I think. I tell him the crazy stuff in my head. I tell him how I feel about certain things. And he tells me about stuff he's going through. And then we just take it to Jesus. And, you know, Noah didn't really have anybody that he could do that with. So Noah got inebriated, and he's laying in the tent, and his son Ham comes in. Ham is the youngest, and evidently there was a conflict between Noah and his son. There was something underneath this, and his son became very disrespectful, and he saw his father drunk, and he saw his father laying there in a compromised position. He looked at him, and I'm not going to go into all the theories about what some people say he did. I think there was speculation. But he saw his father in his most vulnerable position. He saw his father in his deepest weakness. And instead of covering his father up, he went and told his brothers, and maybe with a little sneer and with a little laughter, you ought to see dad. He is he just laying there. He's drunk as a skunk, and he's laying there with no clothes on. He's talking about his father's worst moment. And what did Japheth and Shem do? They didn't buy into that. They didn't, like, join in and talk about it. They went, and they, they opened the tent. They took a blanket, and they walked backwards in respect to their father, and they covered him up so that his neckness would not be seen. His shameful condition would not be exposed anymore. And there's something about grace there. Because everybody has a bad picture. Everybody has a bad moment. Your parents weren't perfect. My parents weren't perfect. But when I talk about my parents, when I talk about my dad... When I talk about my mom, all I have to say is good things. And because my family was wonderful, were we dysfunctional? I'm telling you that every family's dysfunctional. It's just a matter of degree. You'll never hear me talking about the bad things about my dad. You never tell, hear me talking about my mom's weaknesses. You never hear me talking about my friends, my best friends. You know what a best friend is? It's somebody that you see them at their worst moment, and it looks like they've ruined their life, but you say, it's not the end. You still have a future. You see, grace is when you 
see somebody in their worst moment, and you don't tell everybody. Now, now, are there exceptions to this? The exceptions will be if there's somebody that's doing something molesting or doing something illegal or terrible. There are things like that that's a different category. But in this story, and in general life, you don't blab about the weaknesses of other people. Let me ask you, this is a question. We've got just a few minutes left here. I want to ask you this question. Is there something in your life that you would not want a whole bunch of people to know about. Just raise your hand. We're going to take a vote on that. You got something you, really want, you wouldn't want a whole lot of people to know about that. I think, I think that's all of us. And here's the thing. When you have a group of people that get together and they talk about the shameful behavior of somebody else, the terrible thing that somebody else has done, and they talk about that person, and they all have this feeding frenzy, I can tell you that's not a healthy relationship. That's a relationship based on insecurity because people that are insecure in their relationship with other people talk about the bad things of other people. The only thing that can bring them together and bond them with other people is some kind of juicy gossip about somebody else. Whenever I'm around somebody that, you know, they just want to gossip about somebody else, I know that's a very insecure person. They don't know what else to talk about. They don't know how to talk about just healthy things. They have to talk about something bad about another person in order to find acceptance with the person in front of them. And maybe that's what Ham, maybe he was the youngest. He was the, he was the youngest son. Maybe he was looking for acceptance from his brothers. And he kind of went into there and told all that stuff just to maybe try to bond with his brothers. His brothers, brothers did not take the bait. So, when somebody tells you, and you know them, and you love them, and you see them at their worst moment, I I have a good friend that, you know, I saw them at their worst moment a while back. They were under so much stress, so many things happening in their life, and they weren't their best. But I've been friends with them for decades And I'm telling you what, I'm not going to tell, wouldn't tell a thing about that. I love them. And I'll tell you what, I look at them whenever I see somebody at their worst moment, whenever I see somebody losing it, whenever I see somebody just having a horrible day, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me that I've lost it and I've had some bad days as well. And I can relate to that. The Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Let me ask you this. How many need some mercy? So every day, I know I need so much mercy in my life. I'm just like buckets of mercy toward people. People say, Pastor Danny, you're too merciful. Man, I'm putting mercy out there, mercy on people. I'm covering people up with blankets because I know that I need mercy. And when Shem and Japheth covered up their father and hid his nakedness, They were doing what God does for us. Because when you read in the book of Hebrews about Noah in the New Testament, in the New Testament, you will never read about Noah's drunkenness. You'll never read about this moment. This moment is, is gone. It's covered. It's in the past. And when you and I sin and we fall short of God's glory and we blow it and we have our shameful moment and we lose our cool, or we say something we shouldn't say. Um, And those of you that are raising kids, by the way, 
I just have to tell you, I never got through raising my kids without apologizing. I don't know how many here has ever apologized to your kids. That's very humbling. But I tell you what, I've had to apologize to my kids on some things. You know, Dad, <laughs> Dad wasn't at his best today. They say, no, you weren't, Dad. You were not at your best. But God covers your sin. He covers your grace. I've told this story a million times. You've heard it if you come here to church. About I read this book by Keith Miller called uh, New Wine, A Taste of New Wine, back in the 80s. And Keith Miller in this book tells this story about this, this mystical priest that kept having these visions of Jesus. And this mystical priest would... I mean, he was having Jesus appear to him, and so he told his bishop about it, the Catholic bishop. And the bishop was skeptical, and he said, you know, he didn't hardly believe it, but he said, listen, if the Lord ever appears to you again, you ask him this question, what was the bishop's sin before he became a bishop? And this mystical priest went on his way, and a few weeks later when the bishop came into his office, there was the priest sitting in the office, and he called him into his office, and he said, well, what can I do for you? He said, well, you told me to come see if the Lord ever appeared to me again, and the bishop kind of gulped a little bit. And the bishop said, did you ask him what I told you to ask him? What was the bishop's sin before he became a bishop? He said, yes, I did. And then the bishop gulped really big, and he said, what did he say? And the priest said, the Lord said, I don't remember. I don't remember. He takes our sins and he throws it in the sea of forgetfulness. This great man, Noah, at his worst moment, someone covered up his sin, covered up his shame, because that's what the Lord does for us. I love Jesus and his mercy and his grace. My Jesus isn't mad. He isn't getting ready to backhand anybody. Jesus is a Jesus who comes with mercy and grace to forgive us of our worst moment. Jesus did not come for your best moment. Jesus came for your worst moment. And Jesus does not see you as you were. He sees you as you are becoming. And if you're grateful for that, would you lift your hands right now? Let's let the grace of God flow over us, flow over our relationships. May the Lord purify your mouth about other people. May you celebrate the goodness in them, not declare their flaws and their failures. Father God, we all have pictures in our heads of people that have been so difficult in our life. Forgive us, Lord, for our hearts and our anger toward them. We ask you, Lord, to extend grace to them as you've extended grace to us. We thank you, Lord, that you've covered our shame, you've covered our failures, you've covered our worst moments. And Lord, we can move into the future and rebuild our world just the way Noah rebuilt the world after that moment. His life wasn't over. He lived 350 years longer to rebuild the world around him. And so, Father, we can build great things even after our failure. We ask you for blessing us today. We ask your anointing and your blessing to be upon us. In the name of Jesus, 
And everybody said amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.